Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, September 14th. We begin with the latest from the UK and the continuing preparations surrounding the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. We head to London and speak with Ben O'Hara Byrne, host of A Little More Conversation. Next, we continue our Back to Work series. This time out, we learn about the growing number of Canadians finding work in the so-called gig economy. We discuss the trend with Jim Stanford, economist and director of the Centre for Future Work. And finally, Beer Lovers Unite. We hear about the upcoming Oktoberfest celebration being held this weekend in Turner Valley at the award-winning German-inspired Far Brewery. We get the lowdown on what you can expect from brewmeister Jochen Farr. What does the future of work look like for you and your company? The way we work has been changed forever. Now an in-depth conversation about today's workplace. This is Back to Work. One in three Canadian businesses employ freelancers. In fact, one in ten Canadians work in is what is what is called the gig economy that is growing during and throughout the pandemic. With insight into the gig economy and the future of work, we are joined by Jim Stanford, economist and director of the Vancouver-based Centre for Work. Good morning to you, Jim. Good morning, Andy. I want to I want to get down to uh, you know the the particulars when it comes to the gig economy and how it looks in Canada but before we get there how do you define it for people who maybe never heard the term gig economy Well that's a very vague term unfortunately so it uh, you know there's lots of different groups that would fall into it the gig economy was first really invented with the musicians and people who worked on entertainment and different productions that's where the term gig comes from right what's your next mm-hmm. gig uh, but more recently, of course, it's become commonly associated with uh, people who work over different on-demand digital platforms. Uh, businesses like Uber, of course, uh, with uh, driving people around or delivering food. Uh, but that model of employment has spread into other sectors as well. Uh, technology work, office work, uh, even caring work. Think about things like home care or child care type uh, jobs. Uh, many of those are organized on a gig basis uh, these days. The the common features are that you, you kind of work from one job to the next. You're paid for each task that you do. You aren't paid on a daily or hourly basis. You're paid for each uh, job that's completed. And uh, you have no guarantee that you'll be employed tomorrow, basically. Uh, it just depends on when the next gig is there. So let's talk about the pandemic and the effect it had on the gig economy. Uh, Did we see an increase in uh, these opportunities? Uh, Well, there were some aspects of uh, on-demand work that increased uh, during the pandemic. A big one, of course, was food delivery. You know, think back to the the lockdowns when restaurants were closed. Um, Well, that's when there was a surge in demand, you know, to to pay someone else to bring the food to you Mm -hmm. since you couldn't uh, go to a restaurant. Um, on the other hand, there are other activities uh, with on-demand work that uh, were negatively affected uh, in the pandemic uh, for a while, including uh, rideshare uh, services. So, uh, you know, some of the some of the gig uh, systems have increased, some of them haven't. Um, but it, it's clear that the the practice has spread through different sectors of the economy. Okay, so I can see for an individual, it might be a side gig, or maybe you just don't want to fit into the structure of a nine to five brick-and-mortar office, but when it comes to businesses, uh, what is the upside for them to hire freelancers and contract workers such as within this gig model? Right, yeah, well, the uh, the advantage for employers is, you know, you're, you're not taking on any of the risk 
associated with hiring someone when you're not sure if there's going to be enough business to kind of keep them employed. Uh, because the gig workers are, are employed on a task-by-task -task basis, you know, only when the work is there, from the employer's perspective, that's, uh, you know, in a way very favorable because if there isn't enough demand, well, then the workers aren't getting paid. So that's bad for the workers, but it certainly reduces the risk uh, for the businesses. So I think on the, on the whole, this has been driven by a desire by employers uh, to reduce uh, their risk and, and shift some of the uh, ups and downs of the business cycle onto the shoulders of workers rather than uh, taking on those risks themselves. Jim, what sort of an impact does the economic climate have on uh, gig uh, work and, and gig jobs out there? For example, like the rising cost of inflation and cost of living we're seeing, does that increase the amount of gig workers? Yeah, I think a, a major factor there, Andy, is what is the kind of overall level of unemployment? Um, you know, I, that, that factor that I just mentioned, the fact that in a gig model, the risks of the ups and downs, the fluctuations of business are, are borne by the workers, in some ways makes it rather less appealing. Um, I think the, the majority of people would rather, you know, know that they're going to get paid for a certain period of time rather than having to sit around and wait to see if they get the call. Uh, so in general, um, you'll see a reduction in willingness by workers to take on this type of work when other paying work is available. And we have seen uh, as the unemployment rate declined in Canada uh, over the last year and a bit, um, once we kind of got out of those COVID lockdowns, um, the, it became harder and harder for the, the Ubers of the world to, to attract people to this line of work. Uh, simply because, you know, you might end up spending a fair amount of your day just kind of sitting around waiting for the next call and not getting paid for it. Uh, and that becomes less attractive when there's other jobs available. Then if we, you know, if we go into a downturn or another recession, uh, then people are going to be a bit more desperate for any work they can get. And that's when you might see them turning back towards, OK, well, I can't get a, I can't get a regular job, so I'll go out and drive Uber for a while. How, how do we compare, uh, Jim, in Canada to other parts of the world when it comes to these gig economy opportunities? Are we at par or about the same or, or more? Uh, this is very much a, a global trend. There's no doubt about it. The technology of platform businesses uh, has been taken on uh, in countries around the world, certainly in Europe and the United States, of course, uh, to some extent in Asia. Uh, so um, the, another factor, Andy, to take into consideration is uh, what are the regulations? What are the laws? Um, in some places, in some countries, uh, governments have recognized that the, you know, the fact that you get your instructions over a smartphone, you know, which is how it's done uh, in gig jobs, uh, doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't get the regular protections like a minimum wage, for example, or Canada pension plan or workers' compensation. Uh, right now in Canada, most gig workers are denied those basic protections. But uh, in, in some places of the world, particularly in Europe, uh, you're seeing governments uh, start to say, wait a minute. Um, you know, if you're a company like Uber and you're hiring people, you know, they aren't really an independent business. That's a bit of a fiction. They really are a worker and they should get paid the minimum wage and they should get some of the other uh, basic protections. I tend to think that we're going to see more uh, more governments around the world and ultimately in Canada, I suspect, uh, extend those same protections to gig workers. Jim, can you give us a breakdown of who the workers are in the gig economy? Are, are they younger folks? Are they 
uh, Canadians who've been here forever, born and bred in Canada? Or are they newcomers to Canada that are doing these right. things? Right. Well, uh, think back to that, uh, you know, that kind of comparison I was making. If you've got a chance to have a regular job with regular hours and regular pay, by and large, most people are going to take that. Uh, so the people who tend to get kind of pressured into gig work are people who are, uh, you know, somewhat marginalized or have a harder time getting one of those regular jobs. So uh, when you look at the demographics of gig workers, uh, disproportionately, they are young people. Disproportionately, they are uh, newcomers to Canada, immigrants, a lot of uh, international students, for example, uh, end up doing gig work as a way, uh, you know, of trying to make a bit of money while they're here. Uh in essence, it's people who are a bit more desperate, to tell you the truth, you know, to not put a fine point on it. But uh, people who who don't have access to a regular, more secure job get driven into gig work uh, by and large. And uh, again, that's where the ups and downs of the economy will be a key factor in determining whether the gig economy grows or not. Thanks for your time this morning, uh, Jim. Thanks for the discussion. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Andy. That is Jim Stanford, economist and director of the Vancouver-based Center for Future Work. You can find out more about what Jim and his team do at uh, centerforfuturework.ca. Taking a look ahead to Monday, Monday, very early in the morning. We're talking almost in the middle of the night. Uh, coverage will begin right here on 770 CHQR. In the meantime, the procession continues. It was yesterday uh, that, uh, you know, the Queen's casket made its way uh, from Scotland back to the UK, back to London and making its way toward Buckingham Palace and then on to Windsor. But in the meantime, I uh, want to get a, you know an idea of exactly what, what kind of a deal this is because we are hearing it could be the, the biggest gathering in modern times in London itself. And also hearing reports that uh, the king, King Charles III, uh, was doing a, a, you know, uh, his rounds in Ireland uh, yesterday. So it's a very busy time. So to break it down, we've caught up with him because I know he has been very busy. We say good morning to Ben O'Hara Byrne, host of A Little More Conversation right here on 770 CHQR. Good morning. Well, in your case, what is it? Two, just 10 after two yeah, there, Ben? two in the afternoon. Yeah, it's, it's um, I'm actually just waiting here on the mall with hundreds of thousands of others, it feels, for this procession to leave Buckingham Palace to bring the Queen's coffin to Westminster Hall, where she'll lie in state. Um, so there are there is a sea of people here waiting to watch what I believe is going to be a silent procession from Buckingham Palace to uh, Westminster Hall. It's about 40 minutes, uh, the procession itself. It's, it's not that far, but it's about a 40-minute procession. So we're just standing by for that. That should begin in about 20 minutes. This is interesting. We, we send somebody with expertise like you, because I know you've spent time working as a journalist, you know, in that city, in the region, uh, because this is something that, you know, on paper, we, we've read storybooks about uh, royals and we understand, you know, as kids, we know who the king and queen are. But, you know, in our lifetimes, have never been through something like this. I think that's safe to say for the majority of Canadians and the notes and the protocols. We, we never see things like this, do we, Ben? No, I mean, and, and you, you see it too in any time there's any sort of royal ceremony, whether it's a trooping of the color or, you know, everything is, is down to tradition. And there is a way of doing these things that is sort of, it's not that it's set in stone, but it's well practiced. So, you know, all the events that we've been witnessing now, because the Queen passed away at Balmoral, that brought on a whole other um, level of things that happened in Scotland that we saw in the last few days, whether it be uh, the, the voyage from Balmoral to Edinburgh, um, the procession along the Royal Mile at Edinburgh as well, uh, the, the visit the lying in state or the visitation, the, the allowance of people to come here at St. Giles's. 
But now everything has moved to London. We, I was out last night in the rain with, again, a whole bunch of other people waiting for the coffin to be brought back from an airport, a military airport north of the city, to Buckingham Palace. And again, there were just thousands of people there. And then today we're really going to start to see all those things that are steeped in so much tradition. I believe the last time the gun carriage she'll be carried on was used was for Lord Mountbatten uh, back in the late 70s for his funeral. Um, we're going to see the king and the princes, his sons, William and Harry, walk behind uh, the gun carriage, as well as uh, the Queen's other children, Anne, Andrew, and Edward. Um, you know, it, it is all very much steeped in tradition. At the same time, this is a family in mourning, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people here who are watching this unfold in front of them are always keenly aware that this is also about the loss of a mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. So um, there is that sense here, too, that it's not just about sort of the pomp and circumstance of it, uh, even in a funeral sense, but also about a family in mourning. The attraction of, of London at this point, the sense of people wanting to be there, do we have any estimates or any idea of just how many people will be converging on the city uh, by, by Monday? Yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, we've heard all kinds of different numbers anecdotally about a huge number of people wanting to come in. We certainly know the hotels are booked. It is virtually impossible to move around central London uh, these days because of the sheer amount of people that want to lie in these routes. Um, you know, just in terms of the lying in state itself, at one point the estimates were somewhere around 750,000 people were going to want to walk, come and pay their final respects to the Queen as she lies in state over the next five days. So that gives you an idea of the sheer number of people. Um, and we are seeing, I mean, there are always a lot of tourists in London at this time of year, uh, but we are seeing people here that are obviously specifically taking advantage of the time here to leave flowers at Green Park, to come and see the processions, to come and join Britain, as they say, say farewell to the Queen. Increased numbers of tourists, increased numbers of locals who, who want to pay respect, but I would also think, Ben, an increased security presence. Can you tell us about the security you're seeing in the, in the city and, and around the procession? You know, I mean, I was here to cover the London Olympics. I covered the Diamond Jubilee. You know, uh, it, London knows how to handle an event of this size, but there is a clear and visible police presence everywhere you are in central London. Uh, now, it's mostly police. Uh, there's a lot of private security as well, or just you know, hired security. Uh, but you see the military around as well. There was, you know, we know they're also planning for Monday when they're going to have, you know, every world leader imaginable here, which in and of itself is a massive security operation. Um, so, you know, the one thing that's always been quite impressive about London when it comes to these huge events is the security is always there but never obtrusive. Like, you don't really see it until you look and realize there are police every 20, 30 feet along a parade route, both inside and outside, behind the crowd and on, on the route itself. So it's going to be a huge security undertaking, quite obviously, but London has seen lots of big events, perhaps nothing like this, but London has seen lots of big events for which it's had to handle security in the past. So um, I'm sure that that, that, will be, that will be all in hand. But yes, there are an awful lot of police and, and people around. You know, it, it's interesting because we heard uh, rumbles and, and rumors about uh, Operation London Bridge and, uh, you know, the, right. the, fa- the fact that, you know, this has come to fruition now. And, and the 10 days of mourning. Uh, so I'm wondering, Ben, when it comes to these 10 days of mourning, is this a case that it, it's kind of, you know, just in the background or are people taking time off of work? Are you seeing some closures to businesses and organizations? Yeah, the one thing about London is it's such a big place uh, that, that, you know, even coming in, landing at the airport, at the Queen Elizabeth, at the Queen's Terminal, as they call it, Terminal 2, the newest one at Heathrow is called the Queen's Terminal. Even coming in there, um, taking the train into Paddington, which is in central London, more or less, 
um, you know, staying in, in an area called Maida Vale, you don't really notice it. Like it's not it's not a it's not a city in mourning necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's when you come down to that area around Buckingham Palace, around the Palace of Westminster, where Parliament is. That's when you see it. it, it I, I gather everyone has decided, and this is a very London thing. Everyone has said we're going to you know we're going to congregate in this one main area pay our respects to the Queen. And if obviously it makes sense to be down here. Mm-hmm. Whereas in other parts of the city, you see little things here and there, but not nothing compared to what you see when you come down to where I am now, uh, right along the Mall, the famous Mall. You've know, seen all those processions along the Mall over the years, the Union Jacks lining, lining every side of the street, the huge crowds. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm standing now. And this is really where you get the sense of both the mourning, but also the celebration of life that's been going on over these 10 days. Uh, because that's kind of the overwhelming sentiment here is not so much one of profound sadness, but one of wanting to pay respect to someone that felt like a member of the family, a, you know, someone that blanketed the nation, kind of. So you get a lot of that, a lot of people telling personal tales about their memories of the Queen, how much their parents loved the Queen. You know, it, it's been quite special that way. Thanks so much for the discussion. Thanks for your time. We'll let you get back at it, Ben, and we hope to catch up with you again uh, as we move uh, closer to Monday. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. That's Ben O'Hara Byrne, uh, host of A Little More Conversation right here on 770 CHQR. It is a taste of Germany right here in our province. Oktoberfest taking place this weekend. You don't even have to book a flight. It's going to be inexpensive. It's close to home. They got you covered. Details on uh, Turner Valley's own edition of Oktoberfest. We're joined by Jochen Farr. He's the owner-operator and brewmaster extraordinaire at Farr Brewery. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Andrew. Tell us about this because, yeah, there are different beer events. There are different beer tastings. This mm-hmm. is Oktoberfest. It stands out. How many uh, months do you put into uh, getting this event off the ground, Jochen? Oh, I'm honestly, I'm not that much. I, I'm not spending all that much time on it. It's more my assistant, Tara, and she's through the wind right now. <laughs> she's running around everywhere. I can barely see her. Um, but she's probably spent a good four or five months on this already. Okay, so what can people expect if they head on down this weekend to Turner Valley? What do you have planned? Mm-hmm. So it seems like the weather is really nice about like last year. It's about, about 19, 18, 19 degrees during the day. Um, so last year we had three tents. We had a whole bunch of um, German food there. We have, of course, of course, we make our own Oktoberfest beer for the event. We have more bands this year. Like we have the uh, European Touch Poker Band. They were there last year, our very own Adam Cooey and the Earl Morgan Band. And, of course, I think we are beating the German Oktoberfest by a day in Munich. <laughs> they start on the 17th. <laughs> the, the German culture, though, you really try to incorporate as much as you can to yeah. it with the music and stuff. That's important to you? It's very important. I'm very much of the belief that your mood and the atmosphere that, or the situation that you're in really affects on how you taste something, a beer or food or mm. everything plays together, right? And um, yeah. growing up in Germany, I, like in the summer, there would be every weekend some activity like this that people get together and just have a good good time drinking really good beer. And that's what I want to replicate out here. And in order to do that, we actually got the permission from the town to again block off the road. We have six tents now, I believe, for this mm. year. So it's going to be one huge tent. And um, tables, German, like, as I said, my, my caterers here are both German, both from the region. Nice. Um, and I guess I should say that's no cap. 
That's no cap. Oh, he listens to the show as well. Bonus points for that, Jokin. Um, let's, uh, I want to give you some shine here. We're going to get mm-hmm. to some tickets because you've been generous enough and you're going to help me give them away. I'm going to put you to work. But um, your uh, your whole philosophy when it comes to beer, am mm-hmm. I correct? Because I say this time and time again when I'm telling friends about your beer pills, your pills one of my favorites in the world, um, that you have these are authentic German recipes done in our backyard of Calgary in Turner Valley, right? Correct. Um, I, I made the recipes and I came up with them. We're brewing them in Turner Valley, and um, most of, uh, hopefully, hopefully, most of your listeners have already noticed that in 2020 we won the best Bavarian retail in the world. Um, yeah. And we keep winning awards for all of our beers. And so we're doing something right out here, right? That the best Bavarian wheat beer in the world comes from Turner Valley. That's which is kind of funny. But. Um, um, yeah, the, the, just the whole attitude to beer. I've been, I've been growing, growing up around beer all my life, back all my life in Germany, I should say. And, um, it's just that has really distilled kind of that approach mm-hmm. of adhering to the purity law, make really have a focus on the technique of making a beer rather than, than the ingredients, right? All right, yeah. Sorry, absolutely. there's a bunch of puns in there that I love it. didn't even came. You have to try <laughs> to keep up. Intended to. <laughs> we we have to wrap up, but I want to tell people to go to far f a h r dot c a far dot c a. All you and need you to... can get and you can get uh, tickets at showpass.ca uh, slash far dash Oktoberfest. Okay, search. We already sold twice as many tickets as last year, and last year was a bumper party. Yeah. So I think it's going to be a, a blast this year. Yeah, got to check it out this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Oktoberfest, the most authentic edition here in the province. Congratulations to you on, a, on another a great year of making beer, the awards you've won, and uh, looking forward to this weekend, Jochen. Thank you. Thanks so much. Also, I wanted to add one more thing. We do have a bus, ser- a bus service that you can book with buying the tickets, at least from Anderson C-Train ser- Station. Yes, you take the C-Train to Anderson, they're going to take you all the way to uh, Oktoberfest. Thank you very much, and uh, keep doing what you do, Jochen.